We are uh, beginning today uh, a study of Romans chapter 9, and I would encourage you, um, if you have the notes or uh, whatever, uh, to, to refer to those, or if not, just make sure your, your Bible's open to that, that passage, because it's, uh, it's really an important passage. Uh, let me introduce uh, the passage with several comments. I can't remember exactly what I said last week, so I may be repeating it for some of you, but chapter 9 through 11 are, are three very unique chapters. And at, at one level, when you immediately get into chapter 9, you, you think, wow, Paul is shifting gears. He seems to be talking about something completely different, and he is. So let's just kind of review real, real quickly the context. We, we know from chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 6, Paul stresses the importance of justification by faith. Because the first three chapters of the book showed the universal condemnation of all humanity. No matter what God did, he, what he, he reveals himself in creation, reveals himself in human content, reveals himself in his moral law. Human beings have suppressed the truth and hardened their hearts against God. So what's the only hope? The only hope is Jesus. And through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which we appropriate to our life by faith, God then declares us righteous. Justification. In chapter 7 and 8, Paul shifts to the doctrine of sanctification. We put our faith in Christ, we're declared righteous. Now, the practical elements of our life begin to be worked out, where God the Father conforms us into the image of his Son through the Holy Spirit. And we spent a lot of time seeing that. We saw Paul struggle in chapter 7, an intense, transparent, honest uh, re review of his life, summarized in that famous statement, I do what I don't want to do, can't do what I want to do. Well, it's me. And so the answer is chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 8, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's just a triumphant chapter. I think it's one of the most important chapters, practically speaking, in the whole Bible. Now, all of that is optimistic, it's positive, because God, God acts to change us. Because the first three chapters show we are in trouble. <laughs> and Paul elucidates clearly what God did to reconcile us, theme of chapter 5, through Jesus, that we appropriate by faith. But this is hanging over Paul, looming over the discussion that he has been engaged in with the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All the early apostles were Jews. The early converts were Jews. This is the covenant people of God, and yet they have rejected Jesus. Now, obviously, many have accepted him, but for the most part in the first century, Paul would look around and say, most of my people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this is a dilemma for Paul. Now, in, in one sense, I don't know if it really is, but I think it is, because he uses words by great sorrow, unceasing anguish, my conscience bears witness, these first two verses. This is a really deep-seated issue for Paul. What about my people? And so it, as he works through that, he raises another question that he wants to answer. If my people have rejected Jesus as a Messiah, is God done with the Jewish people? 
put it this way. They had their chance. They blew it. Now God's done. They, they had the opportunity. Jesus walked in their towns and their villages and their cities. They heard him teach. They saw him do messianic, messianic miracles, and yet they rejected him. And so heavy on Paul's heart is, oh, if I could only change that. And so what he, he does is he launches in to a heavily theological discussion that God always intended for the Gentiles to be brought into the place of blessing. He will use the analogy of an olive tree, the olive tree of blessing. That God wants to graft into the olive tree of blessing, the roots of which are the fathers, patriarchs of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the covenant promises God made. And, and he grafts the Gentiles in. That was always God's intent. And so he focuses in chapter 9 on God's electing grace, and he focuses in on chapter 10 in Israel's culpability. Is that a big word? You know what culpability means? They are responsible. Their responsible choice of rejecting Jesus, they're culpable for that. And then chapter 11, where he lays out that God is not done with the Jewish people. Indeed, when Christ returns in his second advent, those Jews who are alive will embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Romans eleven twenty six. all of this will be saved. They will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will believe. So that's, that's the big picture of these, these chapters. And it is an extremely important section for you and me today because there is a growing, granted it's still a minority, praise the Lord, but there's a growing group of Christians who are embracing what is called replacement theology, which is the idea, replacement, that the church replaces Israel, God's done with the Jews. They have no hope. They had their chance, they rejected Jesus, God's done with them. And that whole idea, if I could, I don't mean to be polemical here or unkind, that's the official theology of the Roman Catholic Church. That's their official statement. That's what they, that's what they have taught for you know, about 1,500 years, and it is the official statement in their dogma. Now, I would say 90% of the Roman Catholics, they don't understand that and do not know that. But that is the official position. It's not taught much. It's not articulated much. And again, as a matter of fact, most people don't even talk about things like that in any of our churches. But for Paul in the first century, this was an extremely important issue. So what I just gave is a quick overview. Are you with me? Did I lose you? I just want to clarify. Yeah. The, the, the position you just spoke of of the Catholic Church. The official position. Yeah, uh, That is not the biblical position. I would say it is not the biblical okay. position. Yeah, very good. I, I was under the pressure you made this sound like a good thing, and I, I just oh, want to uh, clarify that. Yeah. No. I'm glad you clarified it, because I do not see that as a good thing. All right. If there are no questions, and apparently there aren't, if you're going to follow in your notes or however you want to do this, I want because the, the argument that he's going to present is a tight one, and you have to follow each segment of it. So let's look at the first five verses, because in the first five verses of chapter 9, we really see the heart of Paul. In a way, you really see the pastor's heart here. He's grieving about something. 
He's sorrowful about something. Listen to what he writes. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, that little phrase, I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, it's almost like he's making a vow. I swear I'm not, I'm swearing on something. This is really important. I'm telling you the truth. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, there's an intensity about his words here. I'm telling the truth to you. I'm paraphrasing it. And I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So my, my conscience and the Holy Spirit are speaking as one here. What are you telling us the truth about? What are you revealing? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What, what is that unceasing anguish, that sorrow? That my brothers and sisters that are Jewish are not saved, are not justified, have not embraced Christ. And so these, these are intense, emotional words, sorrow, anguish. But it's not only anguish, it's unceasing anguish. And so because of that, he makes this extraordinary statement in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, that little word I read from the ESV translation in verse 3 as translated accursed is anathema, A-N-A-T-H-E-M-A, anathema. It's a very strong word. And what it means in the Greek is eternally condemned. So he's saying, I could wish that I myself were eternally condemned and cut off from Christ. What's he saying? I'm willing to lose my salvation. I'm willing to give up my salvation for the sake of my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, you see, I'm telling you the truth. The content of the truth is verse 2. I'm in sorrow and, and, and incredibly unceasing anguish because my brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus. And this is so intense for me, I'd be willing to lose my salvation, be cut off from Jesus, if they'd come to know him. Whoa. So, I mean, I th I'm so thankful in a sense. I'm so thankful that he said it this way because it shows that he is, in, he is genuinely concerned about the salvation of the Jewish people. And it, it, it's because of that he's going to follow that trail. Does that mean, then, that God's done with the Jewish people? Now, as we start in thinking about this section 9, 10, 11, why is it so important to answer the question, is God done with the Jewish people? This is a question that's not rhetorical. Online, you can answer it. Anybody in the room can answer it. Why is is so important? What's at stake? As you answer the question, is God done with the Jewish people? What's at stake there? Their salvation. Yes, their eternal salvation, where they're going to spend eternity. But there's also something else at stake here. At stake is, is God's promise. That's right, Fred. God's promise. He made a covenantal promise to the Jews. 
We call that the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that? God made it's an we've reviewed this a number of times. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional unilateral covenant. And if God's done with the Jews, then he's breaking that covenant. Follow me? That's why this is really a big deal in Scripture. And that's why Paul is raising this question. And he shows us that's what he means by what he says in verse 4 and verse 5. Look at, look at the, the, those verses. They are all Israelites. To them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Messiah is Jewish, who is God overall. I want to talk about that statement in just a minute. So in these four, verse 4 and verse 5, Paul has reviewed what in effect is the Abrahamic covenant. This is a big deal because their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the possibility that God's done with the Jews, which he's hypothetically hinting at, has at stake the entire covenantal arrangement God has with the Jewish people. Now, those words, I mean, look at those words in verse 4, the adoption. And, 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 of course, that refers to God chose them, Abraham, he chooses him, and adopted them, in effect, as his children. He speaks of them as the children of Israel, the children of the covenant. Second, the glory. Of course, that that phrase refers specifically to they are to manifest and show the glory of God. Where would you see the glory of God? In the tabernacle, in the temple, when it would be built. So that wasn't revealed, that wasn't manifested, that wasn't shown to the Babylonians or to the Egyptians or to the Philistines. It was to the Jews. And then thirdly, he uses the term the covenants. What covenants? The Abrahamic covenant? The Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And everything God everything God has said is at stake. If God's done with the Jews, then he doesn't keep his word. That's a, that, I don't know how you think, but that's a big deal. If my God doesn't keep his word to Israel, how do I know he's going to keep his word to me? So, I mean, that's a foundational question of our faith. He adds the giving of the law. That's the Mosaic Covenant. That's the sign. I mean, you know what that is. The worship and the, the entire system that was part of the Mosaic Covenant of the worship of God. And that's in the feast days. That's the sacrificial system. It's all of the stuff you see in Leviticus, but even in the Psalms, which there are 150 of those, but they're largely worshipful songs. It's a songbook of ancient Israel. And then he adds, the final point he adds, and the promises. Now, that's, that's a broad term, the promises, but it's, again, summarizing all of the promises that God made. All of the promises God made, um, the, the covenantal promises, but the promises God made of salvation, the promises God made of the resurrection. The resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. And all of the things that everything, everyone that is, is a believer, whether the Old Testament or New Testament believer, are hanging on the promises of God. He's going to keep those promises. Death isn't the end. Death is the beginning of eternal life for the believer. 
So, Paul, I am just so thankful he did this. You see this personal anguish of Paul in these verses, but you also see from verses 4 and 5, what's at stake here? If the Jewish people have not accepted, this is by and large, many did, but probably most in the first century didn't, and today in 2022, there are about 13.5 million Jews on planet Earth. And that's of that 13 and a half Jews on planet Earth, the majority of them have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Another way of saying it, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. So this is still a very relevant issue in the 21st century. And so Paul is just highlighting the centrality of this issue. God's covenant is at stake. Does he mean what he says? So Paul has to explain this now. Okay, let me stop here for a minute. Are you all with me? I mean, I'm trying to really carefully noodle our way through this so that you, you really understand fundamentally what's at stake here. This isn't just a cursory issue that only five people are worried about. This is a major issue of the scriptures that must be resolved. All right. Now, what he does is he says, all right, I've laid out why emotionally and theologically this is so important to me. This is Paul speaking. Now I have to show you something. That Israel, by and large, has rejected Jesus as the Messiah is not inconsistent with the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It does not violate his integrity, his truthfulness, or his promises. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in how Paul's going to show that. Because initially I would say, hold it, God, time out. If the Jewish people have an unconditionally unilateral covenant, they should have been the first people to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. But they didn't. So, God, something's wrong with your plan. You didn't have a very good plan here, Lord. And so what Paul does in these verses 6 through 13 is he wants to demonstrate that this is not violating God's covenant. This does not hit at the integrity or truthfulness of God. As a matter of fact, God never promised to save every child. Of Abraham. God, putting it a better way, that's, that's really a better way to say this. God did not make an unconditional unilateral covenant with every one of Abraham's children. Only one. Look at what he says. Because in a, in a sense, what he wants to do here in verses 9 through 13 is to lay out in categorical terms the sovereignty of God. Paul is beginning to launch into a defense of the freedom of our God as sovereign. But it is not as though God has failed. Isn't that a great statement? It's a declarative statement. Paul is categorically saying don't reach the conclusion because many of the Jewish people have not embraced Jesus as Messiah. 
don't reach the conclusion that God's failed here. That's a really important statement. He's got, to, he's got to defend that. He has to give reasons for that. So he continues in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Now remember, I, I just want to remind you of this. Israel is the new name God gave to Jacob. Remember we studied that a couple months ago, Genesis 32? Jacob wrestles with God, and God changes his name to Israel. Israel means he who strives with God. And so now Israel is the covenant name of the people, and the children of Israel are the children of the covenant father, patriarch Jacob. And he adds, not all are children of, not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham, because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Now, what, what, is, what, is, what is going on here? Um, I'm trying to decide whether I want to get into this technical stuff, but I'm going to do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. The word offspring, do all of your translations in verse 7 have offspring? Not all the children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do you all have, is that the word you have, offspring? Descendant. Any other different words? All right. The term in the ESV or descendant, the, t- the term in the Greek is sperma. What English word do we get from that? Sperm. And then you look at the word that is in uh, the end of the beginning of verse 8. This means that it is not the children. That's not the same word. That's word techna. Now, I, I know I'm being really technical here, but listen. Not all the children, not all the techna, not all the biological children of Abraham are Covenant children, offspring. Well, what do you mean by that? Through Isaac shall the offspring, the sperma, be named. The covenant children. So, now let's think about this. Abraham had many children. The two most famous are Isaac and Ishmael, right? Now, he had many others. Because when Sarah dies, he marries again. He has a lot more children. And that's in Genesis, and just a lot of the different groups of the Middle East are, 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 are coming, coming from that. But Paul's not interested in that. He's interested in one thing, that the Jewish people have rejected, many Jewish people have rejected Jesus' Messiah. Does this indicate that God failed? Well, no, because everyone that's descended from Abraham is not a covenant child. Only those who are descended through Isaac, one of the children of Abraham, are covenant children. Why is that important? Well, it's, just, it's showing something. This is God's sovereignty. This is God's sovereign choice. This is how he's doing it. Now, look at what he says in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. 
about this time next year, he quoted from Genesis 18, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order for God's purpose of election might continue, not because it works, but because of one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as God said in Malachi chapter 1, verse 23, Jacob, I love Esau. So two proofs here of God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign plan in all of this. God's plan isn't failing. Here's God's plan. Not all the children of Israel, uh, excuse me, not all the children of Abraham are covenant children. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. What is that emphasizing? God's sovereignty. Now, I want you to I want you to think with me about this. What is the basis of God's sovereign choice? He said. In verse, uh, what is that, verse 11, actually verse, uh, verse 10, though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor evil, in order for God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was told the older will serve the younger. God said, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. So why did God choose Isaac? Why did God choose Jacob? Because they deserved it? Because they earned it? Because they merited it? No. So God's choice of Isaac, God's choice of Jacob, is based on his grace. Is it? What did he just say? It's not because they did anything good or bad. It's not because of works. Neither one of these guys, Isaac or Jacob, earned it or merited it or deserved it. God's sovereign choice is based on his grace. The body language you're manifesting, Joe, is very interesting. So what's going I'm on as you reach up your face and move? Why would he, well, uh, we can't answer this, but why God's grace is extended. Why was that same grace not extended to Esau? Or other, uh, or other siblings of Isaac? So I'm not, I'm struggling with it. Implicit in your question, Joe, is that God's being unjust and unfair. That's implicit in your question. Oh. Well, a light bulb partially went on there for a second. Well, don't extinguish it. Let it keep burning there. Is God ex- subject to mass acceleration or gravity? 
Are you asking Joe that question? <laughs> well, if uh, if you believe that God is subject to mass acceleration and gravity and therefore must live within time rather than being he who inhabits eternity, um, then that limitation, if we're projecting God in our own image in, as opposed to the other way around, would uh, would be problematic. But we just said last week that those he foreknew, right? Yeah, that's right. He's not subject to time. He can see a perspective that is broader than ours. So if he says, I hated this person, a, a very simplistic explanation might be, well, he knew what choices would be made. That's not the explanation, but it's a potential. It's basically, he knows it's the Job thing at the end of Job, right? Y yes. But let me, and, and I'm not, everything you're saying, even your question and comments, Joe, and what you, you said, Russ, are all germane to this. But I want to back up just a minute. And I want to remind you, what is Paul doing here in verses 6 through verse 13? He's defending a proposition that God is sovereign. And God's choice in his sovereignty, he used the word election, he used the word calling in verse 11, which focus on this is what God has chosen to do. And he's, he's making it very clear that God in his sovereignty has the freedom to do what he wants to do. And you and I as creatures can't look at God and say, that's not fair. I want you to explain why you didn't extend the same grace to Esau. Now, listen, as I said last week when we were talking about this, I, I know some of you are saying, oh, I don't really want to talk about it. But you must talk about this. You must think about this. You must engage this with your mind. This is loving the Lord your God with your mind because this subject here is God. And if God is sovereign, you and I must defend the freedom of God as our sovereign to do what he wants. But now listen, when he does what he wants, it is never unjust or it's never unfair. The focus of these verses, like the end of chapter 8, the focus of these verses is on the right-hand side of the railroad track. It's focusing on divine sovereignty, period. It is not focusing on human freedom. That's not what it's focusing on. It's not focusing on the responsible choice and decision that the human being made. I mean, I could make a very strong case that Esau did not deserve God's grace. He was a jerk. He treated the promise of God frivolously and exchanged it for a bowl of soup. That doesn't mean that God is not kind and compassionate and gracious to Esau, but just on the left-hand side of the railroad track, Esau didn't deserve it. But that's not the point. That's not what Paul's saying here. God chose Jacob. And that's the point he's making in verse 11. When these boys are still in Rebekah's womb, God made the choice. Rebekah, Jacob is going to be the covenant son, even though he's not the firstborn. I am choosing Jacob. And he says that was not based on what the boys did. In the womb, they're neither good nor bad. They haven't done anything. And it's not because of their works, he says at the end of verse 11. Well, then why? 
He chose them. It's his freedom as a sovereign God of this universe to choose. But when he chooses, it's never unjust and it's never unfair. So Paul is defending the freedom of our sovereign God to do what he wishes to do to accomplish his plan. Are you still with me? Or deer in the headlight looks, I'm not sure. No. I can't see any of your faces online. <laughs> Glenn, go ahead. God is not capricious. We don't That's right. worship a capricious God. We work we worship a God of order. We worship a, a God of who is love and who is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So his plans, even though we don't see you know, the reason for suffering, Job, we don't see the reason. There is a purpose, and behind that purpose is the idea that God loves us, for God so loved the world that he didn't even, that he sacrificed his own son. That's why we can have faith, is because of the nature of God. We don't worship a capricious God that's like, oh, you're good one day, you're bad the next day. I, yes. I, I don't like you anymore. There's a there's rules behind this, and there and, and he doesn't violate himself, and he is a God worthy of our worship. And, and it is always the character of God. Now listen, I know you know this. I'm going to state it. It's a proposition. When it comes to human beings, God always deals with human beings on the basis of His grace. Thank God. I mean, I'm serious. Jesus talks about this, for example, in what we call in theology common grace. Jesus says the rain does not only rain on the righteous, it also rains on the unrighteous. The sun does not only shine on the righteous, it shines on the unrighteous. Both of those things are necessary for life. That's grace. Do the human beings that don't want anything to do with God deserve the sunshine which sustains life? Deserve the rain which sustains life. What's the answer to that question? They don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, and I know you're glad for this, that it's not true. But if I were God, some of these people that are unrighteous and rebelling against God, no one ain't God, I wouldn't send them any rain. I wouldn't send them any food. I wouldn't let the sun shine. Now that's just I'm being I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here. I'm using exaggerated language, but that's not God. Russ quoted, God so loved the world. God's grace knows no bounds. And in sending Jesus, he exhibited saving grace. And for you and me, once we can make our decision of faith, it's the sustaining grace that keeps us going. God always deals with human rights and grace. So when we are reading this defense in verse 6 through 13 of God's sovereign freedom as the Lord of the universe, he's explaining I chose Jacob in the womb of Rebekah, not because he deserved it, neither good or bad works. He didn't do anything. He's, a, he's still an, an embryo, I, but I chose him. So God chose him based on his grace, not because Jacob deserved it. As a matter of fact, when we studied Jacob, he was kind of a rascal. Remember him? I mean, kind of throughout his life, and well, God, are you sure you made the right decision there in choosing Jacob? I mean, that's the this is the point. And so, David, David, yeah, Paul is defending the sovereign freedom of God. 
Now, in your notes on page 20, you have a, a copy of a PowerPoint slide I use, but it summarizes, here's God and his sovereign choice. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. And this is, he's working, and we're not going to see this in this chapter. We're going to see it coming up. God also has a remnant. There are all, there is always a remnant of Jewish people who have put their faith in him. Always. He will call them the remnant. And there's a lot of unbelieving Jews. They too he's chosen. So Paul is defending the sovereign freedom of God to do what he wants to do. And in dealing with the human race, it's always on the basis of grace. Human beings do not deserve his grace, but he still gives it to them. It's the common grace of just that which sustains life. It's the saving grace that comes from Jesus. And sustaining grace that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so this is masterful. Now, if, if you're still with me, and that may be an assumption that I have no right to make, but assuming you're with me, may I assume that? Okay? And we're not going to get through this. We're going to get started. What he does in verses 14 through 18, it's like he is anticipating an objection to this thesis, that God has the sovereign right to do what he wants, and his sovereign choice of the covenant people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, is based on his grace, not because they deserved it. An objector will stand up and say, but Paul, just a minute, God's choice is not fair. That's what he answers in verse 14 through 18. What shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? We circle back. It's a little bit what I said to, jo- to Joe when you posed that question a while ago. In effect, Joe, you're saying God's being unfair. In effect, Joe, you're saying God's being unjust. I'm not. That's exactly the heart of what you were asking. And so that's a natural, that's a very human response. Remember, this is God the sovereign choosing, defense of God's freedom to choose, because he's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And Paul's saying, you know, it's going to be very normal for somebody to say, God's unjust in the way he did this. God's unfair in the way he did this. And so Paul answers that rhetorical question at the end of verse 14 in the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language, meganoita, by no means. So what he has to do is show that God is not unjust. So how's he going to do that? Verse 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus 33, verse 19. Those key words, mercy and compassion. Does a human being earn mercy? Does a human being deserve mercy? Does a human being earn compassion, deserve compassion? Paul says, quoting from what the Lord said to Moses, 
Moses, I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. I will evidence and show compassion on whom I want to show compassion. Okay, you going to disagree with that? Are we going to say, but Lord, you can't do it that way. You have to follow my criteria for deciding on whom you're going to show grace and mercy and compassion. Can you understand the audacity of a human being, a created creature, saying to God, I want to choose whom you should have mercy on. And when you make the choice of whom you're going to show mercy on, I'm going to disagree with you. Is that all right, Lord? And the Lord's going to say, no, I'm the sovereign Lord. So then verse 16, Paul draws a conclusion now. So then it depends. What's the it referring to? God's choice to show mercy, God's choice to show compassion. Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not the freedom of the human being. It's the freedom of the sovereign God who never does anything unjust and never does anything unfair. That's what Paul's saying. Mercy and compassion is not dependent on the human being because, quite frankly, they don't deserve any of God's mercy or compassion. But God chooses to show mercy and compassion. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, he's quoting here from, and it's, it's a part of the dialogue that's in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I hadn't talked about that. Now he brings it up. God's sovereign freedom not only involves whom he's going to show mercy upon, but also whom he's going to harden. Harden in this sense refers to a hardening of the heart. Hardening of the heart. Isn't that, when you go back and read from Exodus 7, 8, 9 into 10, that the, the, the Ten plagues on Egypt, which resulted in uh, Pharaoh letting the Jewish people go and, and be free. Remember the, the first several plagues? The text says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then the next plague. And God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it goes through to the end of that that narrative. This raises theological questions, but the key point is God hardened his heart. Now, most, most expositors, if I can quickly go down that money trail, most expositors see the railroad tracks there. Pharaoh, in his freedom as a responsible human being, responds to God by hardening his heart, and he does it numerous times. But only known to God, he crossed that point, that line, that boundary. He will never repent. Therefore, in my sovereignty, I'm going to harden his heart so that my glory may be revealed. And so Amenhotep II, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, rejected God through the plagues again and again and again. And then God said, you crossed that line. Therefore, I will harden your heart now to reveal my glory and my power 
And the story of the Exodus is one of the greatest stories. Even Cecil B. DeMille made millions and millions of dollars on the Ten Commandments, where he depicted very graphically and majestically those plagues in Egypt. Now, I'm saying all that because Paul is taking this now to a key level. Can I charge God in his sovereign freedom, exercising that, with being unjust and unfair? No. Mercy is at the core of God's being. But he demonstrates mercy to whom he wants to demonstrate mercy. Even a wretch like me. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's, and I, Woody, I, I'm glad you, you quoted from, from that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. When you study the background of the man who wrote that hymn, he was a slave trader in the British Empire. And when he came to faith in Christ, he wrote Amazing Grace. And he could not get over that God saved a wretch like him because he understood with crystal clear clarity that everything in his life deserved condemnation. But God extended to him his mercy and grace, and he accepted that when he trusted Christ. So, uh, isn't this a concept picked up in other places in Scripture where it says that God gave them over? Or yes. you, if you resist God long enough, then, you know, there's at some point in some judgment where that's too much. We don't, it doesn't really say, I, I don't have any references to where that line is, but there's a line where it's like, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Now, listen, thank you, Russ, because you brought that up. That was really good. Let's, let's look, following what Russ just said, let's look at verse 11. Um, excuse me, not verse 11, verse 17. From a little bit of a different perspective. For the scripture says, and again, this is from Exodus 9, 16. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, he chooses Pharaoh. Now listen. Did God force Pharaoh to sin? You can't answer yes to that question, can you? Can you answer yes to that question that God forced Pharaoh to sin? Two railroad tracks. Okay. Even before uh -oh. the railroad tracks, it's like if, if somebody robbed a 7-Eleven and then robbed another convenience store and then robbed a bank, you know, it's like, did you force the guy to, to commit robbery? I'm not going to, I'm not intervening anymore. <laughs> okay. That's, that's an interesting analogy. And, and, and in a sense, it really, really fit. What, let's stick right now with the Pharaoh story, the Pharaoh narrative. Let's just think about this with me. For this very purpose, I raise you up, that I'm going to show my power in you. Did God show his mercy and his grace to Pharaoh? Yes. Every one of those plagues gave Pharaoh a, a chance to respond to God's grace and mercy. These are my people. Let them go. Okay, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're the real God. All right? He's going to turn everything into God. Now, 
That's gracious, Pharaoh. I'm giving you a chance to repent. I'm giving you a chance to respond. What does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. So God sends another play. Pharaoh, this is more evidence of who I am. You don't believe I'm the one true only God. You don't believe that these are my people and I want you to let them go. Okay, I'm going to send you another play. That's God's grace. He didn't annihilate Pharaoh. God could have annihilated Pharaoh, wiped out the Egyptians, and the, the Jews were just walked out of the Nile Delta to, to Israel, to Canaan. That's not what happened. And so the third time, third plague, Pharaoh, this is who I am. I'm showing you part of my power. This is who I am. Will you respond in faith? No. And so this, this, these plagues are, you have to see it this way. That's why he's quoting from Exodus 9, that God sent these plagues, gave Pharaoh and the Egyptians an opportunity to respond to who he is. His power demonstrates who he is, Romans 18 through 118 through 34. What did Pharaoh do with that revelation? Suppressed it, rejected it. So God, listen, this is the important theological premise. I'm almost out of time, but I want to make sure you get this. It's on the quiz. When God withdraws his mercy, hardening is the result. And so God withdrew his mercy from Pharaoh, and God then hardened his heart. That's a judicial action on God's part. He began the judgment of Pharaoh. He withdrew his mercy. And the consequence of God withdrawing mercy is a hardening of the heart. It's the first step of judgment. Does that make sense? Yes, that's very, that's. Chuck, you're not sure. Very insightful. No, I guess I'm really God is. That's where I and I cannot comprehend. That's okay. You still believe it. <laughs> the sovereign, the sovereign, the so, that God is sovereign, and that is, you know, it, it for for so many that's satisfactory. But the result, the the reality is, there are going to be some people are going to stand up and say, "God's not being fair here. God's being unjust here." And, they, uh, and again, if, if I can put it this way, if I can summarize the theological essence of this little section, 14 through 18, is God unjust? God's being unfair. And Paul says, no, God is a God of mercy. I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, compassion on whom I want to have compassion. But when I withdraw my, when I withdraw my mercy, the consequence is hardening. Because as I withdraw my mercy, I'm beginning to institute judgment. And I want you to see the plagues in that way. This is Romans 1, 18 through 34 in action. God is revealing his power through his creation in all the incredible things he does in the land of Egypt along the Nile River. And each one of those gave Pharaoh a chance to respond. Because he you know, arrogantly said, I don't believe in your God. As a matter of fact, I've never even heard of your God. Get out of here, Moses. And so God begins to reveal himself to Pharaoh through the plague. But there came that mysterious point that only God knows when he withdrew his mercy. And the consequence was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so theologically, and I, I can never, ever, ever discern when this occurs. Only God knows this. But I believe God continues that today. We have, you and I, I'm going to say that you is plural, all of you, and I have put our faith in Christ. At least I believe you all have. 
We have experienced God's mercy and grace, and we've responded to it in faith. But there are many people on planet Earth that have not. And every day that they draw a breath, they have an opportunity to respond to God's grace and mercy. But when God withdraws his mercy and grace in a person's life, their destiny is sealed. Only God knows what that is. And for most people, I always take the perspective, as long as a human being is drawing breath, they have a chance to respond to God's grace and mercy. And so Paul is defending this is how God looks at things. And because he's revealed it to us, he quotes two Old Testament passages, I will have mercy, says to Moses, I will have mercy in whom I want to have mercy, etc. And he then quotes from X and I about Pharaoh. And when God withdrew his mercy, the consequence was hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You could put it very in a very apocalyptic way. Pharaoh's destiny was doomed. But that wasn't God's fault. Okay. I want to ask Yo, something. You're, I want to ask something, but I'm not sure I should because it could be bunny trail, or it could be so. Listen, this class, this hour has been bunny trail after bunny trail. So, ask your question. Let's not. Let's not. You can you you wrap it up as you see fit. No, I don't want to wrap it up. I want to answer no. your question. So it is feasible, uh, not feasible. Um, the as we've referred to in the past, picking up the gifts of salvation. That gift is may not be there for some people if, uh, based on God withdrawing His His grace, the hardening of their hearts. We refer to Pharaoh here. Well, you may not be able to pick up that receive salvation. But let's let's do it. Let's put it this way. Hypothetically, the, what you are saying there is, is is perhaps true. But don't you ever try to figure out where God has withdrawn his mercy, which life he's withdrawn his mercy, and to make the conclusion they're already doing. Asking that? Or are you telling me you don't, don't try? No, I mean, no. I mean you, but I mean we. The kind of who we are, we never have the right to make that kind of a discerning conclusion. You know what I mean? But the Lord does. But this and is a specific does. example of Pharaoh. That's what he's citing. That's what happened in Pharaoh's life. God withdrew his mercy. And Pharaoh, the consequence was, was hardening of his heart, which is an act of God's judgment. I, I know, and Chuck's right. I mean, this, some of this is really hard, and, and it, it, it really is pressing issues. But if, if I can be very, very transparent here, these are the kinds of questions that I've, I've had to answer a good part of my life. Because in academic circles, but these are the people, you always tell me God is good. Well, I think God's unjust and unfair. I don't think he's good. And I don't think he's just. And I don't think he's fair. That's what Paul's answering here. Because when you start focusing on the right-hand side of the rail track and the character of God, those natural questions, and especially Americans, because we always say everything should be fair and equal and just for everybody. And when you see something like, well, that's unfair. And so when it gets into these kinds of issues, when it gets into the salvation issues, Ultimately, your observation is going to be God's being unfair. God's being unjust in what he's doing. And you and I should be able, first of all, in our own hearts, no, he's not. 
And I always begin, as I said earlier, with the proposition, God always deals with human beings on the basis of his grace. Because if God only dealt with human beings on the basis of justice, there would be absolutely no hope for any human being that's ever lived. And so we keep coming in. This is a character of God in action. And so for, in our hearts, we must be convinced God is not unfair, not unjust. And, and the simplicity of it gets back to who we are. I'm really thankful. In my life, in 1972, I put my faith in Jesus. Me too. Now, the theology can say, well, that's because God called you and chose you. Okay, that, that is theological probably true. I know one thing. I made that choice. The right, left-hand side of the railroad truck. And I praise the Lord every day that I'm not wallowing in the sin I was wallowing in. And this is what Paul is getting at. God shows mercy and grace on whom he chooses. And every human being is experiencing God's grace and mercy. That's the argument of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. God has revealed himself in his creation. That's what Pharaoh looked at. What did he do with that revelation? He rejected it. Human conscience is moral law. No one can ever say God never extended grace to me. Okay. <laughs> All right. I probably raised more questions, created more tension, but that's okay. The more you think about God and what he's doing, sometimes these big questions come up. So, well, we're started. Next week, I want to start with the second objection. That is raised, and that's in verse 19. But we'll deal with that next week. All right, I'm going to pray. This clock on the wall above Don's head is telling me i got to quit. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for our time to study it together. This is hard stuff. What Paul is working through in chapter 9 to answer ultimately that question, is God done with the Jewish people? It's profoundly difficult. It's hard for us to process sometimes, but it's worth the effort. And I hope as I lead the guys through this, it helps them to see in even a greater fashion how awesome, how majestic, how powerful, and how good you are because you are a God of grace. You always deal with human grace based on your grace, not your justice. You always extend to us grace and mercy. But the Bible says very clearly that when you withdraw that, withdraw that grace and mercy, the result is judgment. Ultimately, that's what will happen, of course, in the eternal state. But even now, thank you for saving us. Thank you for extending your grace to us. Thank you that we responded to that grace when we appropriated by faith the work of Jesus in the cross and resurrection. We go our separate ways now. Look forward to regathering next week as we continue in this very detailed study. We commit these guys to you and what they do. May they represent you well in Jesus' name.